Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. This week my guest is Dr. Mike Tipton. Mike has spent years researching what happens to the human body in extreme environments which makes him the perfect person to chat about coping with heat and cold. In particular, Mike and I will be talking about the best way to prepare for training and racing in the heat and we also chat a lot about the current popularity of cold water. I learned an awful lot from this conversation so I hope you do too. Let's crack on and hear what Mike has to say. Good afternoon and welcome to the show, Dr. Mike Tipton. Hello, nice to be here. Now, you were just telling me pre-show that you're down in Cornwall. That's a lovely part of the world. It's a little remote for me. It takes uh, takes me a whole day of travelling to get down there. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm here. <laughs> not, not because of you in particular, but because it is a bit quieter and uh, we've always enjoyed coming here over the years. And I do a lot of work with Surf Life Saving GB and the RNLI. And um, as a consequence of which, you know, we know the area and we know the coastline pretty well. So you're based down there permanently, and this isn't just your summer home? No, no, this is uh, permanent here. I still work um, for Portsmouth University. I do that remotely because we now understand that you can actually work remotely. It's mm. uh, something which we've learned in the last couple of years. And most of what I do is research and supervising PhD and junior members of staff, mentoring them. So it can be done as well from here. But I travel back to Portsmouth regularly, so... That's nice to see my colleagues, but uh, um, I find um, I'm working harder remotely than I ever did when I went into work in person every day. Do you find that living down there in, in your preferred environment allows you, if it's a nice day, to get out and go in the water or go out on your bike or go hiking, or do you still stick to your normal um, working hours? No, no, I've, I've never had working hours. I don't think any academic does. Um, I mean, even if I'm out, I guarantee I'm thinking about something to do with extreme environmental physiology, whether it's putting myself into it or others. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, we did at one stage try and work out. Um, my previous employer was trying to work out how many hours people spent working as, as an academic. Uh-huh. I think I came back with 70 or 80 hours because I include every time I included every time I thought about something. Uh-huh. which you can do anywhere. I mean, that's one of the joys of being academic. You you take your brain with you pretty much everywhere you go. I think it's the same being, certainly I've found that as being a coach for the last 30 years, that I've never really switched off. You know, if I'm riding my bike, I'm thinking, oh, this would be a good route to bring clients on, or oh, maybe this would be an interesting, fun session for them. Or I'm, I'm speaking to somebody like you, so whilst this is my own little MBA because I just identify the people who can help me understand the things I want and ask if I can have, uh, you know, an hour of their time. Um, but it's still work. And, uh, you know, I could be watching something on the telly and it'll probably like you, there'll be a light bulb goes off and think, Oh, hold on a minute. That might come in useful here. So I don't think you ever really switch off. Do you? No, you don't. No, you don't. Well, the reason I contacted you, Mike, uh, is there are two things that I'm really interested in. And you seem to be an expert and have done a lot of research into both of them. Is And it comes under the title of operating in extreme environments. So there's the heat and there's the cold. So uh, that means that we can nicely divide the conversation into two halves. 
My interest in the heat, so let's let's um, chat about that one first, if, if that's okay, comes from being a triathlete and being a triathlon coach and coming from a temperate climate and often going to environments where we're pitched into something. If you go to Central Europe in the summer, it's often very hot and dry, but still not like the UK. And if you go across to Hawaii for the World Championships, it's very hot and very humid and at the wrong time of the year for most people. And so I've I've always been interested in how the human body can adapt better to that as a coach so I can help people perform their best when they come from this country. But before we get to that, I'd like to sort of go back a bit and, and help listeners to understand what happens, just generally what happens to the human body when we're operating in in heat um, and how does the body respond to sort of protect itself really okay so um i mean going right back to the, our origins we're a, we're a tropical animal so we evolved in um east southeast africa and the important thing about that is that the morning temperatures there average about 10 degrees and then you know the, the sort of average daytime um midday time temperatures around about 28 and the interesting thing is, you know, thousands of years later, our ideal temperature for being at rest in air is about 28 and our ideal temperature for exercise is about 10. And pretty uniquely, we have moved away from our origins and that thermal environment. And we haven't really showed very much in the way of morphological or Anatomical, adapt, anatomical adaptation. So we don't have a big furry coat. We don't have blubber. Um, we've used our intellect. And so you and I are both sitting in a house that's almost definitely got radiators. It may have some air conditioning and you'll create next to your skin exactly the same thermal environment as if you were sitting still now in 28 degree air naked. And that's why that's what people try and do on holiday. Um, and we know from the research of people like um, Galloway and Morn that the ideal temperature for exercise, endurance type exercise, is around about 10 degrees Celsius. So those early morning temperatures that we, we evolved in. Now, um, the problem with that, of course, is that major sporting events take place, as you quite rightly said, um, often in the summer, whether they be spur or athletics, um, Olympics. and they require us to exercise in um, a warm environment. Now, the other problem with that is, of course, that we, as we generate heat, about 80% of the energy we consume is released as, as, is released as heat. So we've now got an environmental heat load to deal with, and we've got a metabolically produced heat load to deal with. And although we've got more sweat glands than any other mammal per unit area, we've got about 12.5 kilometers of sweat glands, there's a limit to what they can do. And once air temperature gets above skin temperature, then you're now starting to gain heat by the physical roots of convection and radiation to a less extent conduction. And your only route of heat loss is evaporation. So the body responds to heat by sending blood to the skin to try and offload that heat to support sweating, it produces sweat. It needs that sweat to evaporate, to cool it. The consequences of that is you can get compromised um, muscle blood flow. So your performance is impaired and you can be sweating up to around about two liters 
per hour in terms of fluid um, loss. So you've now got dehydration. If your um, blood is mainly concentrated, or the body's mainly concerned with cooling you down, so it's pumping blood to uh, the skin to encourage that sweating, um, how does that affect things like digestion if, you try, if you're doing an, uh, a long endurance event and you're trying to consume foods as you're going along to, to fuel that? Absolutely. If you look at how the body repartitions the blood flow, um, you'll get a compromised gut blood flow. You get a compromised muscle blood flow. You get increased um, skin blood flow. And as a consequence of which, you can get gastrointestinal disturbances you can um, more um, quickly switch to anaerobic metabolism because your blood flow to the muscle is compromised. And as a consequence of which, because it's, it's only carbohydrate that supports that metabolism, you can end up using um, glucose much more quickly than you would in a cool environment. Mm. So it has, it has significant metabolic, nutritional and performance implications. So if you were doing a triathlon or an endurance event in hot conditions and you hadn't adapted, which we'll come on to in a, in a moment about heat acclimatization. Um, before you've even started, your heart rate's going to be elevated because of the heat and because of your nerves. Um, if the race goes, if, if it starts a little bit harder, like most people do, they go a bit too hard. You're going to take yourself out of that fat burning zone into the carbohydrate burning zone. And we know that that's not like when, when you ease back, it's not like switching a light off and you suddenly go back to burning fat. So you're, you're fueling, your fueling strategy for the race is already going to be compromised because you're burning through your carbohydrates far too early in the race. That, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, and there's, there's little you can do about that other than to recognize that you're going to need more carbohydrate and to recognize that there's an obligation for fluid intake. Mm. Um, and that I mean, one of the ways around this is to change your pacing. Uh -huh. um, obviously, uh, you need to focus on all you can to minimize heat loss. Uh, I'm sorry, to minimize heat gain from the environment. So you consider things like clothing. Um, you can consider making sure that you're pre-hydrated, you're properly hydrated. Um, I mean, compensating by trying to hyperhydrate has a, is a bit of a mixed bag in terms of some people don't deal with it very well. And in any case, it's, it's limited in terms of it, its overall value. So even things like route planning, you know, if there's a, if the, if you're cycling, for example, through a built up area, be on the side of the road where the shade is mm -hmm. realize that as the air moves across tarmac, for example, it picks up heat. So you're better off being one side of the road than the other. I mean, you can get right down into the weeds of this and do a, a thermophysiological analysis of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. But there is no escaping the fact that, you know, it's going to be demanding in terms of uh, fluid requirements and in terms of thermal balance. That comment you made about adjusting pacing there, um, a lot of cyclists that are in events like to work towards their power output now. Um, but for me, power is just output. And sometimes that's overlooking the demands on the cardiovascular system, which is really telling you how your body's operating internally in, in my mind. And so 
I've tried to encourage the athletes I work with to, to, to go by heart rate. And if the heart rate's already getting too high that um, at, at the normal power they would ride at, um, then they need to ease the power back so that they can get the heart rate into the right zone. And I would say the same for people who are running is that rather than going on pace, they need to be responding to cardiovascular effort and, and rate of perceived exertion. Yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree entirely. What what we're talking about is a physiological strain response to the environment, and you're better off matching that matching what you do by strain than an external factor like force, uh-huh. um, so or pace. And you know, as an example, your heartbeat in a hot environment could be eight to ten beats per, per minute higher than it would be for exactly the same amount of exercise in a cool environment. And the two things which we do move towards are heart rate one and also perceived exertion. So your rating of perceived exertion is essentially a integration of all the things that are happening in the body. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it in itself, if it's done properly, is quite a nice way to regulate both your exercise um, performance level or intensity Mm. but also things like acclimatization which we'll come on to i as a coach i think rpe is probably uh, certainly these days when we have um all of the gadgetry that we can wear on our wrist is probably one of the most overlooked ways of measuring effort and if you know when i started out doing triathlon it was back in the 80s and I don't think Polar had even introduced their first heart rate model then, certainly not one that was commercially available. So, and, and there wasn't even any, there weren't any GPS watches. So everybody went on, um, it, you know, perceived exertion. That's how training was done. That's how world records were set using perceived exertion, weren't they? And it was, it was good enough for athletes in the 50s, 60s, 70s and early 80s. But now we seem to have lost that, like we've lost many things with the advent of technology. We seem to have lost that, understanding of what pacing is telling us about our effort level and how to monitor it properly and um in order to use it properly in heat we need to practice with it first don't we so that may be one of the strategies we could recommend to our athletes is make sure you understand rpe and your own rpe uh, you know we've worked we've worked with elite athletes you know we've had we've had athletes in our laboratory that have suffered in the heat and we've taken them to the point where they say that I'm staring into the abyss. I'm, I'm at the point where things went badly wrong. And I can put a temperature on that, but there's not much point in putting a temperature on that um, because that information is not going to be available the next time they're in the heat. What they need to know and what's really important is that you understand the early signs and symptoms of of slipping into heat exhaustion or heat stroke, which is the consequences, which are the consequences of not being able to regulate your body um, temperature. So, I mean, the the phrase I tend to use when I'm thinking about exercise, because, you know, there are other things that might even in a cool environment, you can go out running three or four days and in exactly the same same temperature, exactly the same pace. And one day you won't feel very well. You know, it doesn't feel the same. And that may well be because you've got an asymptomatic viral infection. It doesn't have to be heat. It doesn't have to be cold. It could be some other stress on the body that could be you know, a virus or a bacteria that you don't know about. Mm. Um, so that I always say the secret is to learn to listen to your body, but know when it's lying. Because just occasionally... <laughs> You might feel not like doing very much, but there's no reason for it. So that's the, that's when you've got to be slightly careful because it's easy mm. to slip into another sofa day if you're not careful. So 
you were saying right at the outset of explaining um, what happens when we exercise in the heat that we originated from the tropics many years ago and so from slightly different conditions to what most of us live in now. Now, my question here is, can we ever fully acclimatise to a new environment? And, and my question around this is um, stems from one of the guys that I was once coaching. You, might, you may have come across Dr. Dan Plews, actually. He's probably a, a protégé of yours. He's based in New Zealand now. He's a very smart man. But I remember he went to live in, I can't remember whether it was Singapore or Hong Kong, but both extremely humid. And he said, you know, I was there for two years and I never really got used to the heat. I just used to sweat as soon as I went outside the door. So is that the same for everybody or could you could you eventually adapt to living in that sort of climate? Well, um, so let's certainly if, if you go to a hot environment or whether it be hot, dry, hot, uh, hot, humid, then, you know, you can measure responses and you'll see those responses after maybe 10 or 14 days of, of proper acclimatization, plateau. So, you, you know, there, you've got all the classic acclimatization responses. Um, but, the, I mean, that's just one part of it. There's a whole host of other psychological adjustments and behavioral adjustments and over generations anatomical adjustments that people have that spend, you know, live and have for generations lived in, in hot environments. And so when you ask the question, can you fully acclimatise? I would say that um, in some respects, yes, but in all respects, no. Um, and because that full acclimatisation may well take several generations. Right. OK. So setting aside the can we ever acclimatise to something, let's talk about the, the shorter term. Now, you mentioned 10 to 14 days there, which is which is great because that's what I've been advising my athletes is if you really want to, let's say you're going to race the Ironman in Hawaii, which is in usually the second weekend in October. It's usually, I can't remember what the humidity is there, but it's, it's very humid and it's usually in the high 20s to high 30s, depending on whether you're in the shade or not. And it, it's awful for racers coming from Europe unless you've been there for a few weeks, which isn't feasible for most people who are working and have a family because it's, you know, you can't take the time off work and it's very expensive to get there and stay there. But um, so 10 to 14 days living in that climate is what you need. Is that right? Or can you, because I've also heard that if you turn up and, and uh, perform almost within the first 24 hours, you can do that effectively without before it starts to take its toll on your body. Is that true as well? Well, people have suggested it, but I, I think that's because they're avoiding the dip that you get when you first turn up. Because, of course, when you first turn up, you're, um, it's a bit like going to altitude. Your training intensity has to change. Yeah. So um, I think that's probably the argument. However, you will have, unless you've been to a, a climate chamber before you go, you'll have none of the beneficial physiological adaptations mm. that will help you um, not only maintain a decent body temperature, but also perform. So, um, I, you know, there, there's we can have a debate about the pros and cons of acclimatization versus acclimation, where acclimatization is going to the environment, right. whereas acclimation is something that you could do anywhere in the world as long as you've got access. Okay, well, let's talk about acclimatization or getting used to the heat. What what happens to the body um, in that ten to fourteen days to um, make exercise at the level you want more agreeable? So, um, 
we'll, we'll definitely it's 10 to 14 days preferably about 90 to 100 minutes of exercise a day the mode doesn't matter too much uh, we can talk about the different ways of doing it because there's more recent evidence suggesting you can get quite a lot of benefit from five to six days short-term heat acclimatization but the physiological adjustments are founded on um, an alteration in um, aldosterone secretion which increases and that reabsorbs sodium and, and chloride um, at the sweat ducts now that retention of salt essentially then um, so your sweat sodium is reduced from about 50 to about 25 millimoles per liter, which enables the plasma volume in your body to expand. So the amount of circulating blood that you have is expanded. And that means that you have less cardiovascular strain because now when you've got those competing demands for skin blood flow, muscle blood flow, et cetera, you can meet those demands more um, effectively. Your have a, a better with time um, distribution of cardiac output, improve skin blood flow, sweating occurs earlier, you're more sensitive, um, you have a better recruitment of sweat glands, but the salt content, as I said, is reduced in the sweat. So um, you're not losing as much um, salt. Now, all of those things come to together to mean that, you know, a given amount of exercise is less, produces less physiological strain, less strain on the cardiovascular system. You've got lower skin temperatures, lower body temperatures, lower heart rate, improved physical work capacity, uh, decreased reliance on carbohydrate. I mean, there's little doubt that um, a proper acclimatization regime is the number one mitigating factor for trying to maintain performance in the heat. You're not going to improve performance in the heat compared to a cool environment, but it's, it's how little... Um, you deteriorate that, that this will help you achieve and so at the end of all of that you've got improved salt balance greater st cardiovascular stability better thermoregulation improved work capacity and your carbohydrate sparing so a really important intervention okay so i've got uh, two or three questions from that explanation mike if that's okay sure. the first one is if you have been living in a hot environment and you've been there for a couple of weeks and you fully adapted to that hot environment that sounds to me like when you return to your normal environment, so if, you, if you're in somewhere hot and humid, then you come back to the UK to race, that's going to make everything you do physically so, feel so much more easy. Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. And, and um, there's a debate that's been ongoing for some years now about whether or not heat acclimatisation is in itself an ergogenic age just for performance in a cool environment. Uh -huh. And... Um, I, I, I think the, the you're trying to review like hundreds of papers, um, but I think on balance, the argument is there might be a slight benefit. But unfortunately, the studies that have been done have had methodological issues that don't allow a definitive conclusion. So some of the work suggests absolutely, you know, that you've got very significant improvements in physical capability, VO2 max, power output, time trial performance. Others have more tightly controlled the amount of exercise that you do as part of the acclimatization. Because remember, you're not just exposing yourself to heat, you're doing 100 minutes of exercise a day as well. Uh -huh. And when you factor that in, and this is some work which we've done, um, then the evidence for that improvement is not as great, but it's still it's still suggestive that there's an improvement. Mm. 
Now, if if blood plasma increases, does that mean the body has to then compensate to keep the percentage of red blood cells at its normal level? And so you constant so the total amount of red blood cells you have will go up as well. Which time? Yeah. The, the plasma the, the plasma volume, the really fast changes that you get are in the um plasma volume expansion is very quick the heart rate as a consequence is pretty quickly changed and your perceived exertion changes pretty quickly and you can achieve those things with about five or six days of heat acclimatization uh. longer term changes um will be the impact on core temperature uh, the impact on sweat sodium secretion and the impact on sweat rate they take a bit longer and following the plasma volume expansion, you may also get an increased production in red blood cells that will compensate for that. Okay. Now, you touched on the changes you have to make to your training when you go to altitude. I've worked with several elite athletes who didn't really like going to altitude. You know, there was a day of traveling to get there. They didn't feel good um, for the first few days being at altitude, and it just wasn't a very good experience. Is it possible to use heat acclimatization as a substitute for the benefits you get from altitude training. Yeah, you're touching on a really interesting area now of, of sort of cross-adaptive effects. And about 10 years ago, I wrote a paper on this, trying to encourage people. One of the things you will experience, Simon, with your chatting to experts is that in general, we learn more and more about less and less. <laughs> so you'll have an expert who's, you know, like myself, knows all about the first 30 seconds of going into cold water, for example. But um, unfortunately, the world's not like that. And so um, about 10 years ago, I wrote a paper asking for combined environmental stressor studies and look at looking at things like cross-adaptation. And, you know, between 1948 and 2012, there'd only been 23 papers published right. that looked at those things. And I'm pleased to say that um, there's been a bit of a response, uh, not solely because of that, but because of other things as well. And one of those um, is, it, yeah, I mean, there does appear to be um, a, a heat acclimatization effect that attenuates the physiological strain um, in hypoxia. Huh. Um, and we're talking about hypoxia quite high here. We're talking about 4,300 metres, and it's resulting in a sort of decreased resting um, core temperature, decreased heart rate, plasma volume expansion. Um, nice review done by Ollie Gibson in 2015 dealing with this. Um, and, you know, yes, there's a whole host of improved responses um, to hypoxia from heat, um, uh, including heart rate, um, you know, things like your um, oxygen um, levels in the body so your spo2 improving by maybe about three percent uh. um, we've also done some work looking at um, if you can improve your response to altitude by doing cold habituation so if you do repeated short-term cold water immersions um, we found that actually it improves your performance at altitude so there's this there's this sort of new really interesting area of cross-adaptive effects and it's both at the sort of systems level. Um, so when we did the cold water immersion, we found that the second hypoxic exposure with exercise, there was decreased adrenaline, noradrenaline. There was um, a decreased sympathetic response, 
heart rate, all the respiratory and cardiac variables had improved, number of symptoms of, of, of hypoxia and altitude sickness decreased. Um, so this is, uh, this, was, uh, this is a really interesting area, and it's not just at the systems level. I think it's, there's increased evidence that it's also at the cellular level where some of the cell protective mechanisms, heat shock proteins, HIF-1-alpha, are also upregulated. So you're getting improved um, cold tolerance and heat tolerance and altitude tolerance, as well as at, you know, seeing these changes at the, um, at the systems level. So even if the effects that an athlete felt while they were racing were uh, you know, placebo, and we said that there's, there's, some, relevant, and, you know, there's some relevance to placebo, um, are, are there any negatives for correctly done heat acclimatization and heat acclimation? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a bit of competition. In theory, we did, we were we were slightly concerned when we were looking at um, athletes who would want to do heat acclimatization and altitude exposures, for example, um, because uh, you would expect a plasma volume expansion with uh, the heat acclimatization, but you'd expect a reduction in plasma volume with altitude. So what happens if you try and do both? Yeah. So are you saying that they were trying to do both at the same time? Yeah. So right, if, wow. if you've got if you've got people who are doing heat acclimatization and using, for example, an oxygen tent or ah, sleeping okay. uh, at altitude right. to right. try and get you know to try and get that benefit, mm. then um, the question was, uh, you know, as you say, are there any are they counterproductive? And actually, what we found this is work with um, Becky Neal um, uh, in our lab and, and Joe Corbett. And what they showed that actually the, the benefits you get from heat acclimatization are not negated by an overnight hypoxic exposure, which was equivalent to about two and a half thousand meters, uh-huh. um, 15%. So um, at that level, it doesn't appear to be a problem. At other levels, we know that um, sometimes the acclimatizations can dissociate how you feel with how you are. And this is a particular problem in cold. Um, so you can very quickly lose your feedback. If you repeatedly expose people to cold, they right. feel a lot more comfortable. But what, yeah. what they actually get is a, a hypothermic adaptation. Mm. So their deep body temperature falls more quickly, which we'll come on to later. In the heat, um, you've got to be slightly careful because people can feel better and they may end up working harder. And therefore, they're more likely to get closer to heat right. before they get any before they get any defense. Right. We see that incidentally with putting people into competitive environments. Yeah. Um, you know, where if you put somebody into a competitive environment, some of the cues which the body has to stop you exercising, to decrease your drive to exercise, are overridden. Mm. Yeah. And in athletes um, at the very pointy end of, of, of what we tend to see on the TV, who've got also got very high pain thresholds, that can sometimes result in catastrophic uh, circumstances, can't it? So you can think of, I know um, the, the Brownlee brothers quite well. I remember Alistair blacking out a little bit at, um, in the last few metres in London 2010, and then um, and then he, Alistair having to help Jonathan across the line in Mexico um, for that same reason. Yeah, and I think the other important point to note and it come, comes back to that point we talked about earlier about this sort of um, siloing of expertise is that when, when you go to these extreme environments, one of the first major organs to be affected is your brain. Uh-huh. So your decision making 
is not as, as great as it was. So if you, you know, it's, it, if you had a strategy, sometimes you ignore it and you try and make decisions on the hoof. Um, and, and, you know, we're at the moment trying to push quite hard saying, okay, well, you have a physiological response, you get hot, but that changes your cognitive function and it, it impairs it. So now you start to make bad decisions that make you hotter and you get in this horrible descending spiral, mm. you know, so, you know, you, you, you've got hot, you think, Oh, I need to go a bit faster or I can go a bit faster. And all that's going to do is make you hotter. And the next thing you know, you're in heat exhaustion. And we've seen that with top athletes. I, I can think of uh, um, an example perfectly there. Paula Newby Fraser, who, who was probably, she was still queen of Kona at that time. She'd probably won three or four times there as well, well as racing many times. So she knew exactly how to deal with the conditions. But with about a mile to go in the marathon, she knew she was being caught and she made this decision that if she didn't stop at the aid stations to get water, she would be able to stay far enough ahead of her nearest competitor to get to the finish line. But what that did was mean that she was closer to, um, you know, just just a, a huge collapse. And that's what happened within about 200 metres of the finish line. She just came to a dead stop. Her legs gave way. And, of course, she was thinking irrationally. Now, that sort of puts an answer to it now is the brain. Um, help to make poor decisions. If she just stopped for a few seconds and got a couple of cups of water down, she might have had enough within her just to get those last few hundred meters. So the lesson is, you know, generally, I mean, it's difficult because you know you want to be able to react to the situation you're in, yeah. but particularly when you're in very hot environments, you know, bright ideas sometimes are not that bright. <laughs> um, just one more question I had to. Uh, to ask you about the adaptation to the heat, you talked about um, reduced sweat uh, sodium loss. Uh, do you subscribe to the theory that loss of um, electrolytes through sweating leads to cramping? Well, I, I mean, we don't really know what does lead to cramping, no. but there's, but undoubtedly that would may well be a component of it. Um, and I mean, this is one of the reasons why acclimatization is so important because it helps conserve mm. um, because salt. So you don't, you know, you're always running on this balance between dehydration, overhydration, hyponatremia. Mm. Um, so again, um, a benefit of heat acclimatization that is sometimes ignored is your improved ability in terms of, of salt balance. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what that's making me think now, and again, I, I can assure you I haven't been exposed to the heat, so this is a bright idea that hasn't been brought on by <laughs> poor cognitive thinking. But, um, yeah, the radiator's not on at the moment. Um, if, if you were racing in the UK, but you suffer from cramps regularly, and I, I still think that there's something to do with that mechanism of, of, of uh, loss of soul, but I also think that if you look at a lot of people who get cramps, there's some sort of muscular fatigue coming in there either because they're too tense or because they're just working harder than they've trained for. But still, if you were racing, even if you were racing in the UK, if you did some heat acclimatization, that might help you actually cope with race better in temperate conditions. Well, that, again, back to that point of, is there, is there um, an ergogenic benefit of heat acclimatization irrespective of what temperature we're going to perform in? Now, just rewind back to where we started we said that 10 degrees Celsius, 10 or 11 um, mm. degrees Celsius is the ideal temperature um, for endurance activity. Now, that means that 15 degrees 
or 22 degrees are above that ideal temperature. Yeah. So in theory, that that's a heat load. Now, because we always think of heat in terms of, oh, it's in the 30s or in the 40s, mm. but 20 is still a pretty warm environment to be producing, you know, 1,000 watts of heat. Um, and so the argument is that not that um, heat acclimatization is beneficial in, you know, cool environments. It's that those cool environments aren't as cool as you think once you start getting 15, 20, 25 degrees. And so this, that those benefits, they may not be as great as those that you see when you're going into the heat because it's a much bigger stimulus, right. but they may still be there and of use. Um, right at the beginning, when we talk about acclimatization, you used two very different words, although they're only missing a couple of letters. You called uh, heat acclimatization when you're actually living in the environment. And then you talked about heat acclimation, which is when you are creating a, a similar situation in your own environment. So that would be like somebody following a sauna protocol or working in a heat, uh, an environment chamber. So uh, a lot of the athletes that I work with, they're not professionals, so they don't have access to – some of them had access to heat chambers, but they're, they're very rare, aren't they, those? And uh, they're not cheap. Um, and so they're always looking for creative ways. And, of course, social media plays a part in here because you'll see somebody in their bathroom with the shower on full blast and the radiator on and they've got 15 layers of clothes on. You'll see people in their um, conservatory with three radiators on and the sun blaring in. Um, is it possible to recreate the, uh, the situation or to expose yourself to heat in that way so that it's a benefit? And what have you found to be the best ways of doing that? Yeah, okay. So you're absolutely right. Um, acclimatization is an adaptation to the heat in a natural environment. And acclimation is when it's in a, 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 a you know an artificial environment. Right. And there's pros and cons. Uh, I mean, the problem with acclimatization in the natural environment is like you know you've got the heat all day so it, there's there could be a big dip in your training intensity because of that um also the weather varies so you're not you may well get a, a, you know, a poor run of weather into a hot day for competition um you then sort of have to start separating heat exposure from training the 10 people then start to do their training really early in the morning when it's cooler and then have to do a heat acclimatization session later so it's manageable but it's difficult the advantage of acclimation is you know it's essentially hot when you want it and the rest of the day you can train in a cool environment you can get the precise conditions when and where you want them um now you and you can set up these things i I, I think probably, um, and I think it was reflected in the performance or at, in Tokyo that heat acclimatization was taken more seriously than I can remember by by the um, GB athletes this time round than it's ever been taken in the past. Uh. And I think that's why we saw, for example, in triathlon, a really good um, set of medals, um, and they were doing artificial heat acclimatization for well over a year. Uh, often the, the preparation for extreme environments is left too late um, until the last minute. You know, where are we going to have the holding camp? And then you find that you don't know that some people acclimatize more quickly than others. Other people have a limit to acclimatization. Some need different interventions. But that was dealt with much earlier. Uh, and I so one of the big recommendations is if you're going to go and perform in the heat, go through a heat acclimatization protocol a long way out. There's another reason for doing that is because 
there's quite good evidence now, um, a nice review paper just published by Hein Dahn and, and, and colleagues, that actually re- you're returning to heat acclimatization. So your top up, if you like, is, is easier and quicker than getting the original um, acclimatization. How do you do that? Well, you're quite right. People have used bathrooms. They've used saunas. The EIS were um, erecting tents because, of course, they were trying to do this under COVID restrictions as well. <laughs> um, and you you only have to try and get the right environment in terms of the WBGT, wet bulb globe temperature. I mean, if you can get it precise in terms of temperature and humidity, that's fine. Um, that's great because it gives you better perceptual adaptation. But generally, you want to have the same thermal strain evoked um, in the body from the environment. Now, my only problem with all of this, with people trying to do this sort of thing on their own, is, of course, the danger that they hurt themselves. Mm. Because generally, if you tell an elite athlete that X is good, they'll believe that 2X is twice as good. Yeah, and of course, not just the not just elite athletes. No, no. everybody thinks you know. Well, if I stay in for twenty minutes, that does me. If I stay in for forty minutes, well, unfortunately, in this kind of situation, if you stay in for forty minutes, you go from physiological to pathophysiological. Uh So you know, I with that caveat, then it is perfectly reasonable to get an environment that you can train in in a garage, you know, in a spare room. And, and, and get some of the heat acclimatization. Um, your mode of exercise in that situation is almost definitely going to be a, um, you know, a bike on a turbo trainer or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, but you can do it. If you can monitor yourself, RPE, heart rate, deep body temperature pill, for example, which is probably you know, at the, uh, the upper end of what you would do, then uh, that's great. Um, and there are differences in the way we go. The, the optimal way to heat acclimatize people is where we do controlled hypothermia. So that's getting your body temperature up to a certain level every day. And what that'll mean is as you become acclimatized or acclimated, you'll have to work a little bit harder and a little bit harder to get to the same level because your body's getting better at offloading the heat. The problem with the older way of acclimatizing, where you just go into the same temperature every day and do the same amount of exercise, is as you um, acclimatize or acclimate, the stimulus diminishes. It's a bit like going out for you know the same speed run over the same distance all the time. Eventually, as you as you uh, adapt to that and as you get fitter, the training stimulus is diminishing all the time, and the same mm. applies to heat. I remember when I went to Hawaii doing some heat chamber work uh, at the university in Leeds, and the first day I thought, well, I'm I'm just going to sit on air on this turbo trainer, but you know, and he had I had a thermometer gauging my ear and uh, the, the guy who was running it was coming in every 10 minutes and checking on this and that and we got a pre-agreed core temperature load that I had to stop at if it, if you know if we reached that um I was trying to push 200 watts and within about 15 15 minutes I would say I got to that I got to uh, my agreed upper limit and I had to ease back and after that point it didn't go any lower it stayed where it was, and I could only I could only pedal at 100 watts. And I said to him, "What happens if that happens in a race?" He said, "The only way to cool down once you've got your heat, your core temperature up to that level is stop and immerse yourself in something cold for a long while. You can't keep exercising and expect your core temperature to come down. So it's curtains really in your race, unless you're not adapted. 
Um, was that with Mark Hetherington? It was, yes. Yeah, 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 I know Mark well. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And so, he was very good, Mark. He weighed me before and afterwards. He was really <laughs> precise about measuring um, how much fluid I'd drunk. You know, I had to take my bottles, I had to weigh those in. We had an agreed um, hydration strategy. It was excellent. I did, uh, I think I did about six sessions. Um, he got a treadmill in and I brought my turbo train in. And so we did six sessions before Kona and then. Um, there was four of us who went to the marathon de Sable and we did, um, we did, I think we did six sessions each, uh, on double treadmills, um, with just running and using, um, working from, and this is where we, where we did the whole, um, uh, increasing of load. We started off with just in running gear and then we eventually went up to full packs over the six days. So we were increasing the load, not through the speed, but through the, uh, th- through the load we were carrying. Yeah, and it, you, were doing, you, you were doing a, you were doing the best, but you were doing a sort of controlled hypothermia. So yeah. you were getting your body temperature up to about thirty-eight-five, mm. holding it there for about a hundred minutes, and every day you do that, and it just requires you to work a bit harder. Mm. Uh, to, you know, in one way or another, either in terms of the intensity of the exercise or what you're wearing, or even increasing the temperature of the room. You've got to do exactly. You've got to do it a bit harder every day. Um, and you're maintaining then the stimulus to adapt. Whereas if you'd have done the same amount every day as you did on the first day, you yeah. hardly have a stimulus to adapt by the end. And we, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. One of those things you can monitor that by is heart rate, because as you get acclimatized, then for all the reasons we've said, your heart rate goes down. So you'd have to work harder to keep it to the same level, but you could also do it on RPE. So if you happen to be in a field and you've got no heart rate monitor, you can almost do it by RPE as well. So, uh, you know, but, you know, as I say, it, you, people just need to be careful. If you stop all the heat from leaving the body, um, which we get close to doing when we put some protective clothing on, for example, and you exercise moderately, you'll have heat illness in about 25 minutes. So, you know, we're, we're fairly close to where we get into trouble. I mean, elite athletes are working up at around about 40, 41 degrees Celsius, 42 you're, you're in a good you've got a good chance of getting um heat stroke which is a, a serious medical condition so, so I, just be careful so we don't want to be wearing a bin bag while we're running then no no or a chemical biological or radiative protective suit either or anything like that you know and, and fight in the desert that's not a good idea either <laughs> I've, I'm familiar with a, uh, a protocol which a friend of mine who's a coach uh, supplied me with, um, which is based around the sauna. So you exercise, and again, you don't, it, the mode of exercise isn't important. You, you exercise at a moderate level for around um, 60 to 70 minutes without taking on any fluid. And then immediately afterwards, you go into the sauna and you do three lots of 10 minutes of exposure where you can drink ad lib. And then you continue to do the same volume of exercise at the same intensity, but you increase your um, duration of exposure in the sauna over maybe going in every two or three days and doing this over a period of, of two to three weeks before your event. Does that sound like a sensible approach? Yeah, I've heard the same, and people have done the same with hot baths. Mm-hmm. So, And it's a way of extending the, the basically the thermal um you know the thermal stimulus or the dose of heat that you're getting um now uh, the original work that was done on um heat acclimatization compared passive heat exposure 
and this was done back in the 50s and 60s, passive heat exposure in either a sauna or a bath compared to active. And the conclusion from that work was that, you know, ex exercising is, is an important component in the heat acclimatization protocol. But we've got this now subtle variation where you do, as you say, you do your exercise in the heat and then you just maintain your temperature longer by going into a bath or a sauna. Mm. Um, I think the evidence is that it, it, it does have some utility. I think, again, you need to be slightly careful, particularly in these very hot environments and hot water, because you can warm up very, very quickly. Uh -huh. um, you know, if you go into water at about 40, 41 degrees Celsius, um, even staying still, you can get your core temperature up by a degree in 15 to 20 minutes. Uh -huh. um, so that, again, needs to be done very, very carefully. And uh, I mean, just most people who go out and exercise and, it, and particularly um, athletes, elite athletes, will be getting their core temperature up regularly. So your core temperature will be going up. Even if you go out on a cool evening like this evening in the UK, your core temperature will be raised by going out and exercising. So what that tells us is that the drive for adaptation to heat is actually getting the skin temperature up. Mm. And that's why people over the years, I mean, many years ago, before the South African World Cup, um, you know, the Francoise Pinar World Cup and um, Nelson Mandela, the year before we were working with the British rugby team, the English rugby team rather, and they were looking at wearing neoprene suits to exercise, to have the same effect. So actually, although the core temperature is the one we tend to focus on, or when you've got to get, you know, when you did the stuff with in the Leeds with Mark, we've got to get the core temperature up to 38.5. Uh. It's actually getting the skin temperature up that's critical because your core temperature will be up to 38.5 every time you go out for a run at 50% of your VO2 max. And going to a hot environment, going to a hot bath will help you do that um, easily. Okay, Mike. Well, we've really dived into uh, the hot stuff. And uh, somebody picked me up on the fact that I'd asked you if we could talk about cold water and dive deep into that one. So that was a, an unintended pun there. Um, we've got about half an hour left. So uh, can we talk about cold exposure, please? Because that's become very, very popular during the last 18 months, particularly cold water exposure. Um, lockdowns helped and a certain Mr. Wim Hof and his books and his increasing notoriety have accelerated that. Uh, maybe we can start like we did with heat and uh, you could explain what exactly happens when we expose ourselves to cold air and, and maybe also to cold water if there's a, if there's a different physiological reaction. So the major difference between cold water and cold air is that cold water is much more effective at taking heat away from the body because they're, they're both fluids, but one, they're very different in terms of the physical characteristics. So um, water has 25 times the thermal conductance, for example, of, uh, of, of air, and a human will cool about four or five times quicker in water uh, than they will air at the same temperature. And there are some responses that you only see in cold water, that you don't see in cold air because of that ability. So one that we have uh, done a lot of work in over the years is, is something we call cold shock, is when you first go into cold water, the sudden cooling of the skin causes uncontrollable breathing, increasing cardiac um, workload, increasing blood pressure. And that you don't see that in air. It's just not possible for the skin to be cooled fast enough about 25 degrees C per minute is the kind of rate we're looking at. So cold shock, but that, and, and that's a precursor to 
drowning um, and about 60% of those that die in the UK probably die from cold shock. Can I just ask you then, in, in triathlon, they've been, I mean, in percentage terms, it's not great compared to the number of people participating, but still there have been deaths and obviously every one of those is sad when somebody's participating in an athletic event. And But the majority have come from the swim and often they've been in people who haven't, haven't been diagnosed as having any conditions and, and maybe completed lots of endurance events. And I've often wondered whether it's the combination of the um, the anxiety of the race, um, maybe rushing into the water and going a little bit too hard at the start and that sudden exposure to cold water, plus the tightness of the wetsuit, which is just a perfect, a perfect bad storm, if you like. Yeah, I mean, so the question is, why do 80% of the deaths that occur in triathlon occur in the swim? And why aren't they occurring when these people train? Mm-hmm. Because they are, we don't know that they are, but I think we would we would see a statistic that would say people are dying a lot when they train. It's happening in the events. Mm-hmm. And we looked into this and we've published on this, and we think it's a combination, as you say, of um, an increase in anxiety, so an increased yeah. sympathetic drive. Um, you then go into the water. You've got your face in the water. Now, just those two things induce two conflicting inputs to the heart the exercise the excitement is trying to accelerate heart rate but if you put your face into the water you get what's called a diving response classic response of diving mammals that allows them dive for a long while and it's trying to slow the heart and we know that if you put the face into water whilst a hold of the body into water and then you breath hold for a period Within about 10 seconds of breaking that breath hold, you've got about an 85% chance of showing a cardiac arrhythmia or a dysrhythmia. Ah. Now, uh, we've called it autonomic conflict because it's a conflict between the two arms of the autonomic nervous system, one trying to put heart rate up, the other trying to bring heart rate down. And um, it's actually compounded by anger. Now, I mean, I'm like you, like me, have experienced a mass participation start, which is a bit like leaping into a, a washing machine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, you go out, you swim like mad because that's what happens when you first start. You turn to take a breath. You can't because there's a plume of water over your face from someone else. So you extend your breath hold time. Uh, and, and that's why majority of these deaths are occurring in the first 400 meters. Right. And we think we think it's autonomic conflict and people want to read more about it. I'll provide you with the papers. And the other the other dangerous time is when people come together to go around boys because exactly the same thing. Mm. Marker boys, exactly the same thing happens again. So uh, the reason it doesn't happen in training, of course, is one, people don't get angry Two, they can breathe freely and they don't have the same level of excitement or or sympathetic drive. Mm. So uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. But we think. We know what happens. And the nice thing about applied science, we therefore know what to do to avoid it. Um, proper wave starts don't have people clambering all over each other. You know? Yeah, yeah. You can organise this risk down to a very small level. And I, th- I think, you know, I commentate at events, big events, and we've seen since COVID that we've been forced into having staggered starts now um the majority of people i mean i'm i'm one of the strange ones i like open water swimming and i'm comfortable in open water and so i don't mind that 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 sort of washing machine frenzy but i that is i'm a limited percentage of people i know the majority of people are very anxious about the swim and that staggered starts have helped and we've it hasn't really put it hasn't really created any delay to the events and the timing of them and 
I know a lot more of the competitors are happy with the experience. So it seems like all around for the majority of people, it's just um, it's just a better solution. And certainly in terms of keeping people alive. Yeah, absolutely. And it also means you can actually do some swimming rather than pulling on neoprene, which is what you have to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fighting, yeah. I always think that the best tra- way to train for a triathlon swim would be to uh, to play water polo regularly. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. In fact, I say that to me. I used to play water polo, and that was by far the best preparation for the first 400 metres of a triathlon mass start. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we can we ever get used to I mean you, you've talked we've talked about cold water there what about just living in the cold in in the same way that um we talked about whether you can really acclimatize to um to hot temperatures can you can you ever really acclimatize to really cold temperatures or is it is it and is it the same mechanism in reverse to the one you described earlier yeah, it's, it's a good question because you can pick up the textbooks and you'll see all about heat acclimatization. You'll see all about altitude acclimatization. You'll see nothing about pressure acclimatization, going to you know, diving to depth, and you'll see very little about cold. Um, and for years, people thought that it, it didn't exist because the studies that were done on people who lived in the cold just demonstrated what we spoke about earlier is that they were smart enough to avoid it. <laughs> hence the classic hence the classic saying man in a cold environment is not necessarily a cold man um however you know it's quite obvious when you take somebody like lewis Pugh, who we've had in our lab yeah and you put him into cold water and you see absolutely no initial response from him whatsoever in fact if you look at your graphs you can't tell where he's gone in the water whereas if you take you or i we'd be hyperventilating way you know breathing uncontrollably you know heart rate shot up, blood pressure shot up. So yes, you can habituate that cold shock response. It doesn't take very much. It takes maybe six three-minute immersions. You can halve the response. 14 months later, it's still reduced by about 25%. The longer-term adaptations are also a form of habituation in that people who go into cold water quite a lot, and this work has mostly been done in cold water because I say in cold air, people avoid the stimulus. But those who do open water swimming tend to have a a hypothermic adaptation. They lose their shivering response. Their core temperature is falling quicker than it ought to, but they feel very comfortable. And that's where it becomes very dangerous for an open water swimmer to, you know, to perceive how they're feeling and set their own limits because they probably haven't got a clue what's going on. So that brings me round to a gentleman I'm, coaching who lives in Donegal and had started swimming with some uh, group of open water um, swimmers throughout the year. And I suggested to him that perhaps if he did swim with them, he needed to make sure he was always swimming with a buddy and not on his own to start with, because of that very reason, you sometimes can't tell when you're getting into trouble. In fact, we know from people that are, as you said, for people who are hypothermic, so too hot, they they lose cognitive function, but also people who are hypothermic, a classic symptom is uh, poor cognitive function, poor decision-making. So we don't want somebody swimming further out to sea because they think that they're all right because they're not going to come back. So they need to have somebody with them who's, um, who's experienced and in control. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of quick examples just to warn people. Phil Rush, who is the one of only two people to swim the channel three ways nonstop, uh, sort of tumble turns on the French coast and <laughs> comes back yeah. the, uh, and does it again in Dover. Um, I was talking to him. He's New Zealander. He's taking people now swimming across the Cook Strait, wow. and he regularly has people swimming to unconsciousness. Mm-hmm. So, because if you look at it, what well, you know, you can 
you know, you'll you'll be unconscious when your deep body temperature drops to between 33 and 30 from a normal 37. But muscle function isn't completely impaired until you get down to about 28. So in a situation where you're working hard and stirring all the temperature in the body <laughs> pretty uniform, it's possible to come to um, possible to swim to unconsciousness. And then the greatest swimmer of his age in 19 in the 1950s was a guy called Jason Zerganos who in those days, hypothermia wasn't really recognized at all, uh, ended up swimming to the point where um, he died in the water from hypothermia um, uh, and hadn't felt cold, hadn't perceived that, you know, that he was getting cold. So the advantage of being unacclimatized is all your behavioral mechanisms are switched on. As soon as you acclimatize, you lose that self-perception. Mm. So it seems to me like, even for people who are acclimatized, because those two examples you just given were people who are used to those conditions, you mm. still need to have a buddy. And I mean, if you're in open water anyway, and I know you do a lot of advice, uh, give a lot of advice to open water swimming associations. If you're in any sort of circumstances in open water, even if you're wearing a wetsuit, um, I don't think you should be swimming alone ever. No, no, no. I mean, yeah, there's, there's an enormous upswing in people doing open water wild, cold swimming now. And, there, and there, there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, advice so number one make sure you're healthy and fit enough to do it in the same you know going a tropical animal going into 10 15 degree water is an enormous challenge this is an extreme environment you know go to your gp make sure you're fit enough preferably do it with a club never go in on your own stay within your depth wear a wetsuit don't be don't feel like you have to go in in skins because other people are don't go in for more than 10 minutes where use um, a, a swim float um, you know, to so people swim boys, so people can see where you are. Wear a, a, a hat, best color to wear, luminous orange or yellow. You know, the, there's a whole host of commonsensical things mm. to make you um, hopefully maximize the benefits of go, of doing this and minimize the potential dangers. And it needs to be said, you know, we're, I think the Coast Guard call outs now for people getting in trouble doing swimming has gone up to, by about fifty or sixty percent. Yes, and got to remember that RNLI are all volunteers, so they're putting their life at risk to save somebody who's, you know, unnecessarily created risk, haven't we? And, and everybody's keen to say that there is no such thing as zero risk, but everybody can do something to minimise risk. And it, it, it's getting into trouble in the open water can often be very binary, can't it? So uh, um, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to sort of accelerate that risk if if you could avoid it. Uh, I mean, as I say, go, go. There are lots of clubs. There are lots of people you can go with now, more now than ever, um, and you can do it safely. And if you if you start with the rule that you don't go in for more than ten minutes, and you don't go out of your depth, and you do it incrementally, um, you know, then you've got a chance of you know progressing and you know safely. But uh, you know, running down and diving off the end of a jetty into twelve degree, thirteen degree water is not a great idea. Well, we hear it every year, don't we, that people have a hot day. So people's body, the body temperature is probably raised anyway, as we've talked about in response to the heat. Um, where my friend swims um, in, in Yorkshire, there was a, a, a drowning last year. Three lads were driving home. The reservoir was there. It was a really hot day. They stopped by the side of the road. They jumped in, started swimming across the other side, which is only a couple of hundred metres, but one of them got into trouble in the middle and they then I don't think they found him for three days. Um, it's it's very sad and it's a pandemic that's been going on for years um, and we're losing in the uk still somebody about every 20 hours child a week and it's mm -hmm. so so commonplace that you don't really see it reported anymore 
So, you know, it's it's a dangerous, unforgiving environment. I mean, just as one quick example, that cold shock response we talk about when you first go in where you go like that, that breath in is about two or three litres. The lethal drought, the lethal dose of water into the lung for drowning is about one and a half litres. So your first breath when you've gone on, you've you know, you've jumped in or you've dived off a, a jetty is sufficient to cross yeah. the lethal dose of drowning. Yeah. So, mm. you know, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not being, you know, the harbinger of doom in every in every situation. But, you know, there's ways that you can do things to maximize the benefits and minimize the risks. I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I always think that my podcast and presentations that you do are public information services and we need to make sure that we are not encouraging people to do things that are unsafe i wouldn't want to be somebody to be bringing my name up in connection with something nasty that had happened i'd want them to say simon encouraged us to be safe and uh, and look after ourselves and actually um the interesting thing is of course that i mean we're uh, we're currently really involved in preventative medicine is what we're talking about here mm-hmm. and we're trying to get water safety messaging into schools we want one 20 minute lesson teaching kids about rips if you don't know what a rip is find out about it if you don't know how to get out of it find out about it um with cold shock and tides and if and we know that if people if kids understood those three things it would have an enormous impact on the number of lives lost um going forward um and the, the problem is it's quite difficult to get a measure of the impact of preventative measures because, you know, you're trying to measure something that didn't happen. But uh, with, with, you know, you've only got to look at saving lives at sea, the RNLI program, see mm-hmm. how many people get in trouble where a little bit of information would have saved them. Well, what we'll do, Mike, is we will put all of the, all of that information you just talked about there, the wild swimming advice, the guidelines, the rip current stuff, all of those. We'll, we'll put links to those in the show notes um, so that we can um, sort of share that with a, a, a wider bunch of people. Immersing yourself in cold water um, has, as we've already mentioned, become very popular over the last couple of years, probably more so because of the perceived acclaimed mental health benefits for doing so. And so therefore, as people's mental health has been challenged a little bit more in the last 18 months due during the various lockdowns, um, it's become a popular thing to do. Uh, there's also been a, a well-published and, and, and well-referenced author now, uh, the Dutchman named uh, Wim Hof, um, who maybe shares some of the responsibility for that growing pop- popularity. Are there any real health benefits for repeated exposure to either cold air by going out and running around the cold streets early in the morning without a shirt on or walking for extended periods of time with short and t-shirt or exposing yourself to cold water, whether that be um, immersing yourself in an ice barrel or having a cold shower every day or, you know, going swimming in the cold lake. Yeah. It's uh, it's a question I get a lot and I spend a lot of time talking about. And uh, the answer is, Quite a lot of the evidence is anecdotal. Um, that doesn't make it wrong. It just means that what well, we don't really know the mechanisms behind it. So now the, the, the fact that there's three things that people say. They say, oh, I feel alive and alert when I've had a, a, an open water swim. I've been in the cold water. Uh, and that's because we know that part of the cold shock response is the release of the stress hormones. Um, that, that's a that's a standard fight or flight response. So that explains that. We also know that quite a lot of conditions um, have an inflammatory component. So atherosclerosis, atrial fibrillation, type two diabetes, Alzheimer's, depression, 
inflammatory bowel disease. You know, lots of lots of diseases have an inflammatory component, and we can certainly postulate and hypothesize about cold water immersion and adaptation to cold having an anti-inflammatory component to it. Um, so therefore, I can I can give you a potential mechanism. What I can't tell you is if that's actually operating because we haven't done the studies. And the problem with going open water swimming is you're not just getting cold, you're also exercising, which we know is beneficial. You're going into a, a relatively weightless environment. You're going into a, be a beautiful environment, which may be giving you blue or green therapy. You're socializing. You're achieving something by going in and defeating mm. cold water. Now, all of these factors may well contribute. But um, and finally, you get you talk to open water swimmers. They say, "Well, I haven't had a I haven't had an infection for a year. You know, I'm, I'm never ill." Um, and I mean, there's some evidence that um, a, a short cold exposure may prime the immune system, but a longer one may actually impair it. Mm. And so. I, I think probably, and, and, I, and again, hyper, purely hypothetically, we're desperately trying to look at this because there's so many people saying it's beneficial um, that I think the, the cold shock response may well be the short, sharp um, immersion may well have some beneficial effects. Um, I am less convinced that longer term immersion is particularly beneficial um so sorry by by longer you mean short term as in 30 seconds versus yeah uh, yeah I, I mean i think quite a lot yeah. of what's going on is being driven by that sudden fall in skin temperature which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why i don't think cold air exposure is necessarily that good for you because you just don't get that level of that level of um release of the various hormones which then have a component which is anti-inflammatory and which primes the immune system but everything i've said in the last five minutes is hypothetical mm. but we come to the point which is you know if you've got thousands and thousands of people saying this is beneficial for me that may be a placebo effect but so be it you know if that's if that's working for them if that's stopping their depression they're yeah. you know, making them feel um, meant more healthy mentally and physically, then that's fine. But what we want to do as scientists is I want to know what the active ingredient is, what the mechanism is, because you might then be able to achieve it more easily for people who can't go open water swimming. Uh -huh. um, so it's a really fascinating area. It's almost impossible to get funding for it because it's moving along the sort of the scale away from medical research into into you know a, 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 a sort of more outlying area but uh it's desperately needed to be done um and we, you know we've published papers in the area we've we've identified the hypotheses we've actually done case studies of a young lady who, who had pretty severe depression that open water swimming um relieved her of and she came off drugs so, you know, it's, it's quite interesting anecdotally, um, but um, we await the mechanistic underpinning. There's a, uh, a, an English doctor who's based in the United States called uh, Tommy, Dr. Tommy Wood. I, I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Uh, he's an, he's, he's, his big sphere is ancestral health, but he has this phrase that he, he speaks of when people are talking about diet, and he says, look, whether the scientific evidence is there or not, if you tell me that you are using a particular approach to nutrition and it's working for you in the long term, how can I argue with that? And I suppose in, in you're saying exactly the same thing. If you have a cold shower every day or you spend 
two minutes in an ice barrel every day and you think that you're healthier and you think it's good for you, then, you know, how can yep. I argue with that? Yeah, a, a, a placebo effect is still an effect. And it may well be that we just don't know what that effect is because we don't have the skill to measure it down at the sort of neurophysiological, um, neurochemical level. But it's still an effect. Um, now, the only thing I would say about all of that is just make sure before you make these decisions to do these kinds of things, as we've already said, that these are informed decisions and you understand the dangers associated with sitting in a barrel of ice water for two minutes a day or going swimming offshore in, in January, because, um, you know, th this is not a risk-free activity. Um, and what we want people to do is by all means do what they want to do, but have enough knowledge to maximise the benefits and minimise the risks. Is, is there evidence anywhere that um, contrast treatments work? So going from hot to cold, like sauna to ice uh, to plunge pool, that's quite popular in, in some spas, isn't it, where you go out the sauna or the Turkish bath into a small plunge pool and then back and you, you sort of do several bouts of that? It's a really good question, Simon, and the answer is I don't think we know. Um, I know that if you get very hot and then you go into cold, you don't get such a large cold shock response. It may well be reduced a bit just by simply by heat contained in the skin. Mm. But we're going to I think we're probably almost going to finish where we started in that, you know, our ancestral origins involved us getting hot and getting cold, you know, um, you know, exercising to hunt, being in a, a, a pretty cold environment overnight. And what we've done through evolution is because we've used our intellect we've managed to completely remove most people have managed to completely remove those perturbations that challenge your homeostatic mechanisms mm -hmm. so we now have temperature controlled environments we wear clothes i guarantee that if you're feeling comfortable that the average skin temperature under your clothing is 33 degrees celsius which would be exactly the same it would be if you were naked in 28 degree air but the difference is a lot of people are not getting up and getting hot and getting cold and doing exercise. And as a consequence of which we're seeing an increasing number of medical interventions where you make people cold and it makes them feel better and you make people hot and it makes them feel better. I mean, whether it's, you know, whether it's just part of the body or the whole body. And that's, that's, that's telling me that we've got to the point where we've become too thermostatic too sedentary mm. and we have these homeostatic mechanisms that want to maintain balance in the body but they need to be perturbed they need to be challenged and in a, and, and, and the analogy that people will understand is that if you just sit on lay on a bed for a couple of weeks your musculoskeletal system will diminish to the point where you'll struggle to stand up mm -hmm. you need to challenge these systems and in the modern world we're not doing that enough and i think that's why people are moving towards these kinds of activities and extreme sports because they're trying to unknowingly put that perturbation back into their lives. So we need to get out of our comfort zones a bit, um, a bit more often then. Use it or lose it, I think is the easy way of summarising. <laughs> Just, I mean, that was a great way to finish, Mike. I, I know that my listeners would ask, um, hang me out to dry if I didn't ask you this question. Let's talk, just Wim Hof for a moment. He's been to, or he says he has been to very high altitudes in places like Everest, which is one of the most inhospitable places in the world, in just a shorts and a t-shirt. Is 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 he just he just have a peculiar adaptation to cold in the same way that Lewis Pugh does, 
or is this? I mean, I can't. I can't understand how there would be anything else to explain that. Yeah. So uh, the number one point, um, and I, um, you know, I, I think I've had lunch with Wim Hof. I know Wim Hof, and I get asked about Wim Hof on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is, you can't change the laws of physics. No. Um, what you can do is so in terms of adaptation to cold. I've already said you can take out the the cold shock response. You can you can become much more comfortable. Uh, in an environment, what you can't do is adapt to the neuromuscular dysfunction that comes as that cold front moves into the body. Mm-hmm. What you can't do is adapt to the um, changes in cardiac and respiratory function that come with cooling. But you can become a lot more comfortable in hot environments, cold environments and at altitude because you become rested, you've, you've, you've changed your perception. So absolutely, uh, we've worked with Lewis Pugh, great guy, goes around, does a lot of important work for the oceans and for, for climate change. Um, but he doesn't spend more than 20 minutes in the cold water. And it, nobody's going to become hypothermic in less than 30 minutes. You can go to altitude. If you're at complete rest and not doing very much, that's fine. The, ch- the challenge with altitude is to be there and be exercising. Where you where you're so you know you can create a scenario where you can go into very cold water, you can go to altitude, you can go into very hot environments, um, but that scenario has got to be one um, that is is minimising the challenge to the body. So he could so he could exist at, at that high altitude in extreme cold temperatures, but he wouldn't be able to do it all day. He could just expose no, himself no, no, to it for short periods. No, no, you have to limit period. your exposure and limit right. the exercise you do. So, um, so you I mean, I'm going to say. I, I mean, Sorry, he, he can sit. He can sit on that glacier there, like the photograph with his legs crossed. But he wouldn't be there all day, would he? No, and also he best be sitting because if he was running about, he'd be unconscious. Right. Um, I, I I always say to people, if you give me a big guy who's a really good swimmer, give me him for two weeks, I'll create somebody who can go and swim in Arctic waters. Um, okay. but they won't be swimming in there for more than ten to fifteen minutes. Well, after this podcast being aired, Mike, you may get a few letters and phone calls. <laughs> well, that doesn't that happens all the time. <laughs> anyway. Dr. Mike Tipton, it's been absolutely fascinating. You've uh, you've really educated me, and I hope the listeners too on on um exposure to heat and cold. Thank thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've I've really appreciated your time. Thanks for the invitation, Simon. I've enjoyed it. Okay, listeners, that's it. Hope you enjoyed it. That was myself and Dr. Mike Tipton. We'll be back next week with another great guest. But for now, thanks for listening. Thank you to Mike for joining me on the High Performance Human podcast this week. There are lots of links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. I really appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human podcast. If you haven't already, please join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes so you never miss another episode. And please also join our High Performance Human Podcast Facebook page. Okay, that's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. And please remember that being a high performance human is a journey. So stay healthy, stay focused, and keep trying to be a little bit better than yesterday. Yesterday.